Father, as we come to your word that speaks to us of the, of the coming of Jesus, we pray, that we pray that what is a story that is familiar to us that we might be captured in you of what you did for us. And in the way that you came, will draw us to you. Father, we pray that we would understand your word and that we might hear it with our hearts and our minds and our spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. There's nothing like quite um, the anticipation of a coming child, particularly when you're the parent or grandparent. I can remember that uh, first occasion when uh, Judy told me that uh, she was pregnant with our eldest child, Rebecca. And it's been just as exciting with subsequent children as well. Not just the first one, but I guess that first occasion that occurs. And it's one of those kind of wide-eyed moments of the joy and uh, the wonder, the, the delight it's one of those kind of situations that initially you kind of kind of not what to say. You kind of think, well, some of us anyway, you kind of get lost for words. And the only kind of expression is often a hug and, and tears of joy uh, of the anticipation of what you will share together. Of course, we decided not to tell our parents for some time. We wanted to make sure that all was well. We wanted to spend some time privately with ourselves until the pregnancy began to show. And so you waited a few months uh, before we, we told our parents and others. And I'm sure that's true for many of you here as well. Finally, we tell our parents. And you imagine the news and the excitement of a, of a new grandchild that's going to enter into the family. Maybe not as much as it is when there's a royal family announcement about having a baby. But you can imagine the excitement and the anticipation that has come to a nation that his saviour is going to be born. Can you imagine the anticipation that Israel had you see, because of their disobedience, the tribes of Israel had been divided. They divided into two kingdoms, two separate kingdoms. Israel in the north, and Judea in the south. And in Isaiah's day, their national and religious leaders were incompetent in governing the people and thus a righteous ruler would be welcomed and would free their people and their nation from famine and war and lead them to safely and to bring long life. Assyria was getting ready to knock down the door of Jerusalem. But God sends a promise of a saviour. They were living in fear and anxiety. It was a time of uncertainty for them. And the news arrives through the prophet that a saviour in the form of a baby boy who would come and who would save the nation. 
you read the previous chapter, chapter 8 in Isaiah, it's a real downer. It talks about how Israel had ignored God and because of that Assyria was going to come down in judgment and it would spill over and it would affect Judah as well. But though that, and, but through that judgment a special deliverance would come and whether it would be the oppression from Aram and Assyria or from Babylon or Judea's oppression by Herod and Samaria, Herod and Rome, or present-day concerns that we might have in the midst of regional upheavals and international posturing and sabre rattling or more personal and family tensions. All the hopes of all the years are ultimately wrapped up in the swaddling clothes of a babe in a manger. Deliverance would come as a ray of light, of joy in victory, in the form of a son, the chosen one. And today we begin the season of Advent, which is a time as Christians we celebrate each year, which we will be focusing on in these next four weeks. And the word Advent means coming. And it's the time of expectant, waiting and preparation of the coming of Jesus at Christmas. Advent is the the period of four Sundays and weeks before Christmas where we prepare and remember the real meaning of Christmas. And there's actually three kind of meanings around this sense of Advent, this sense of coming that we celebrate here at this time of year. The primary one is commemorating the come of Jesus into the world as a baby to live a life as a man and to die for us. Secondly, we can also invite Jesus now into our lives as he comes to rule in our lives, in the present. And then it's the time of the future when Jesus will come back to his world as king and judge at the second advent. Now Isaiah 9 is what we call a messianic prophecy. It means that it is a word from the Lord that talks about the coming Messiah, Jesus. And there are actually over 300 such prophecies in the Old Testament which refer to the coming of the Messiah. And God began to prepare the world for his coming, for the coming of Jesus with a multitude of prophecies concerning him so that there would be no mistake that when Jesus came that we knew that we would know that he was the Messiah. Very few of them are quite as specific as here in Isaiah 9, which was written some 700 years before the birth of Christ. But the Lord promises a son who will reign over this earth and that this son uh, will come, but his full reign will not come until his second coming. And after Israel hears the gloomy words of the coming of Assyria, God then shines a ray of light. 
He brings hope into the future. You see, one of the great motifs of the incarnation, the coming of Jesus, is the actual light breaking into darkness when the true light comes. And the darkness can't distinguish that light. Jesus is still that ray of hope in our world today. It's why we lit this morning the candle of hope. You see, in our dark and gloomy world, there is a promise whose Saviour who will be with us now and who will return in the future as the reigning king to establish peace. Verses 1 and 2 tell us that the light will shine through. That there is nothing like a ray of light on a gloomy day and Israel needs it. Isaiah tells them in 8.22 that they look at the earth and behold the stress and darkness and the gloom of anguish and they'll be thrust into thick darkness. And God describes the darkness that they go into. But then as he comes into chapter 9, he says, but they can take hope because there will be a great light that will shine. I think there's something quite beautiful, something quite wonderful when the morning sun breaks through the horizon in the early mornings. I particularly appreciate watching it come over the ocean. Not that I get to do that very often. But to feel its warmth and its increasing brightness, especially around this time of year. And when the sun rises in full force, and blasts through the darkness. It brings hope and it brings confidence into a new day. And it's interesting that the first to see the gloom here for Israel in those areas near the Sea of Galilee would be the first to see the light. Assyria would attack Israel in the divided kingdom and come down to Judah. And then the promised son would first go to the northern section. In other words, Jesus began his ministry there in Galilee. And in fact, Matthew 4 verse 13 brings, quotes these two verses, that the promised light has come and there will be no gloom for those in anguish. In Luke 1, 79, Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, prophesied that Jesus would be that light to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Jesus came to bring light to all of those who sit in the darkness. And that means even today, whenever there is a cloud of gloom hanging over us, whenever we feel anxious or fearful or confused, it is Jesus who will bring light and hope. 
And it is when we turn to him that he takes that darkness and he expels it and he brings a new creation. Later in Ephesians 5.8, Paul reminds us that for one time you were in darkness, but now you are in the light of the Lord. Walk as children of light. And as we continue to walk in the light, by following God's word and the leading of his spirit, the promised Messiah will be a ray of light and Jesus fulfills this. Verses 3 and 5, 3 to 5, prophesy that the Messiah will also do something else. He will increase our joy. There will be an outbreak of joy because of the nativity. You see, with the coming doom of the Assyrian Empire hovering above them, God goes even further and promises that the, rock, the yoke and the rod will be broken and the oppressor will be defeated. And the yoke and the bar and the rod were instruments that were used to dominate and to hurt people physically. Well, they could be used for metaphors to describe a, a heavy burden upon people through taxation or domineering rule. And God will shadow and break the oppressive yoke of their enemy, we are told, and he will replace it with increased joy. They have been reminded, or they would have been reminded, of Psalm 4 and 7 that said that you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. The people will rejoice and jump for joy like people do when they see an unusually massive harvest probably referring to the Feast of Weeks. It's a bit like the roar, the jumping of the crowd when a, a football or other sporting team scores a goal or a try or takes a wicket. And the reference to Midian is a hearkening back to the Battle of Gideon and the victory that they had with just 300 men. And why incredible joy? Well, because of them, they would have been delivered from Assyria. The anticipated Messiah would rescue them. But Jesus promises the same joy for us when he delivers us first from death and from sin and from the strongholds that keep us from growing and maturing in him. You often see this. When someone comes to faith in Jesus, when the weight of the world is lifted and there is subtle joy. I'm reminded of a young mum who last year, uh, when we were over in Perth, uh, young Sam, who was a very committed atheist in the life, but life had just kind of got overwhelming for her and her sister said, look, find a church and, and link up there. And, and she came and uh, very quickly came to faith in Jesus and just the radiance and the joy in her and it was just a kind of lesson for all of us. And her husband who couldn't read and uh, had really nothing to do with the church 
got overwhelmed by the change in her and a month or two later came. And he too came to faith and great joy and so forth. And in the last few weeks, just out of that kind of change in his whole life, donated his kidney to his mother-in-law so she could go on living. What great joy changed those lives. And we can also experience increased joy when we are set free from the bondage of things in our own lives so that the promised son brings light and increased joy. And who is this promised son? Well, verses 6 and 7, first and foremost, indicate that he's the glory of the Father. This positive prophecy comes to a climactic end by announcing the birth of a son who will reign forever as a righteous Davidic ruler. The prophet's message provides information about his birth and his role in government and his names and his reign of peace and his eternal rule on the throne of David. And he offers us strong assurances that God will accomplish all these things. For unto us a child is born. And this glorious prophecy of the of the birth of a Messiah reminds Israel that this victory bringing Messiah would be a human, a man, a firstborn. Theoretically, the Messiah could have been an angel or the Messiah could have been God without humanity, but in reality, neither of those options would have qualified the Messiah to be our saviour or our high priest as Jesus was. A child was to be born. And there is nothing more vulnerable than a helpless, more or more helpless or more dependent than a child. Theoretically, the Messiah could have come as a fully grown person created as an adult like Adam. But for Jesus to fully identify with humanity and display in his life the servant nature that is of God, he made himself to be of no reputation, taking on the form of a servant and coming into the likeness of humankind. The government would be on his shoulders. Ultimately, that will be fulfilled with the second advent. And names in the scriptures are extremely important because a name conveys not only who you are but something about your character. And Isaiah 9 verse 6, which is probably the best known and loved verses in Scripture as it reveals the dynamics and the characteristics of the coming Messiah as well as the implications for the people of that day and us as followers of God. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The idea isn't that these will be his names, his literal names, but that they are aspects of his character. They describe who he is and what he has come to do. Hebrew names were given to express a person's character. 
And God gives us four characteristics about Jesus. He wasn't called by any of these characteristics, but they are exhibited in his life. His wonderful counsellor. This is actually one phrase which combines the idea of doing something wonderful, extraordinary, miraculous, supernatural, with the skill of giving wise advice and making plans and counsel. And it suggests that it is this son's life will somehow exhibit miraculous acts of God. And Jesus is the fulfilment of that prophecy because when we look at his wonderful life, we see his teaching and we see his miracles and his love and his compassion and his mercy and his grace and his forgiveness and his wonderful sacrifice for us on the cross and a call to us to follow. Isaiah's calling this king wonderful counsellor. He's making clear that this powerful, mighty and glorious doer of great miracles can be our guide and it is him that we need to listen and to discern from. It refers to his role as the leader and the guiding force in our lives. That he is the one who impacts wisdom imparts wisdom and experience in order to lead us from darkness and confusion into light and order and out of danger into safety. And that's what Jesus does for us and why he's called Wonderful Counselor. Jesus is the one fit to guide our lives. And while he might use other Christian counsellors as a resource for us. Inevitably it is him for whom we need to speak wisdom and counsel. Later in chapter 2, verse 29, Isaiah again reminds us that this also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. Then he's described as mighty God, which means all-powerful. It refers to the one who is strong and mighty and invincible, the God of creation and glory, the Lord who reigns in heaven, the one, the only one who is worthy of our praise and worship. There's a very clear declaration of his deity. This word is used later on as it refers to Yahweh, to God himself, that the remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. Whatever our circumstances, whenever we might feel under attack by the enemy or elsewhere, we need not ever forget how mighty is our God. And he deserves our absolute reverence. He deserves our genuine love and supreme love. He deserves our genuine faith. He deserves our unconditional obedience. He deserves our consecrated service. He deserves our total worship. To reject Christ is to reject God himself. 
And then he's described as everlasting father. And this third name is one word in Hebrew combining two ideas into one concept. It's possible to translate everlasting father as a sentence, my father is eternal. This term father is fairly rare in the Old Testament, even though the Jews are called the children of God. And here it means the originator of, the author of. It means the father of that which is everlasting, of that which is eternal. Later on, Isaiah says in chapter 4 and 28, 40 verse 28, he says, Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. And his understanding no one can fathom. God is eternal, therefore all he provides, everything that we need from the beginning and for everlasting. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he is the Prince of Peace. And this is a term we'd expect of a king. And Isaiah 9, 6 includes the first of Isaiah's 25 references to peace. He will bring peace when he comes to rule. And peace can mean different things to different people today. But the Old Testament view... The word peace, shalom, meant far more than silence or the absence of conflict. They saw peace as a living, vibrant thing for the well-being of humankind. True, True peace has got nothing, nothing to do with the situation on the outside. It's got everything to do with the condition on the inside. A person can be at peace no matter the situation, no matter what the circumstances are. And how is that possible? Because Jesus is the Prince of Peace who rules his kingdom in peace. So if we belong to his kingdom, we need to allow him to rule in our hearts in peace. God's answer to everything that may have ever terrorised us as a child, the power of God is so far superior to the Assyrians and all the threats of this world that he can defeat them by coming as a mere child. His answer to the bullies swaggering through history is not to become a bigger bully. His answer is Jesus who comes as the Christ child. Humble vulnerable. May this season of Advent be for us a time of expectation and anticipation 
as we move towards celebrating the coming of our King, the coming of Jesus as a child. Let me pray. Father, we come to you. We come to you, Father, as people seeking to know you as our wonderful counsellor, as our mighty God, as our everlasting Father, as our Prince of Peace. Amen.